0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise.
0: We just thought that Richard Stanley doing Island of Dr. Moreau was one of the most exciting projects we'd heard of in a while. This is going to be a huge project and this is going to propel Richard Stanley into
2: the superstardom that he deserves as an auteur.
0: It was a script we were extremely confident in that we thought would be some sort of milestone
2: in the genre. Newline tried in different ways to contain the material. You know, I wasn't particularly enthusiastic about the project, frankly.
0: There was some lunatic movie that's known as one of the worst films ever made.
1: Marlon Brando... And Val Kilmer were there to mess with the film as much as possible.
2: I've dealt with some very, very difficult actors in my life, but I have never ever dealt with somebody like Marlon Brando. He wanted an ice bucket on top of his head.
0: He'd covered himself in white paint.
2: I think that's how the whole mini-me thing developed of Marlon adopting this little guy. It doesn't matter
1: who directs it. It's not it's not it's not about the vision, it's a you know it's about the stars. <laughs> Did you hear about, oh my God, the, the Richard Stanley climbed into a tree today. It wouldn't come down.
2: It was living and breathing Moreau, and then literally just have that murdered. I think he probably went a bit mad.
1: I think once that rumour started, that Richard Stanley was in the background, that I think that just grew into Richard Stanley
2: then wanting to sabotage the shoot. As it went on, it descended into more and more kind of madness. I knew that this was going to be... Totally insane, and that we were going to be hugely lucky if we just finished a film with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Knowing that the odds were stacked against me, I resorted
1: to witchcraft.
0: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I am your host, Mike White. Joining me, of course, is Mr. Rob Say Mary. Hello, sir. This week we are doing a special episode on "Lost Soul: The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Doctor Moreau." It's two prepositions in there. It's quite a long title, but it's quite a good movie. Rob, had you heard about this film before you watched it?
1: No, I did not know about it at all. To be honest, I knew some of these things about Island of Dr. Moreau, such as the original director snuck onto the set and was an extra in the film that was taken away from him. I knew that, but I didn't know much more than that. And to be honest, I feel like I've missed out because I haven't least as far as I know, seen any other of Richard Stanley's films. I would like to see Hardware. I remember the box cover. I remember the box cover at Thomas Video for some reason like looked like uh, the Videodrome box for some reason in my head from my memory. But I never got a chance to see any of his films. So uh, I need to correct that very soon because from my understanding, Hardware was an excellent film.
0: I have seen hardware and enjoyed it quite a bit. I haven't seen Dust Devil yet. I just remember hearing this weird story about Dust Devil. A friend of mine told me years and years ago, he was like, oh, yeah, Richard Stanley, he's really into magic and stuff. And he painted all these things on the the walls in the back so that if somebody bootlegs the tape, then they're supposed to be cursed. And I was like, get out of town. <laughs> and then I find out. No, Richard Stanley is really into magic, and I wouldn't be surprised if he painted shit in the background that was supposed to curse you if you bootlegged
1: this film. You know what's funny is that I guess in some way he probably shares a, uh, a kindred idea with another guy who is very strong in his vision, but from a completely different medium, and I would say uh, Alan Moore. I, oh, yeah. I almost got the feeling of that this man like, knows his stuff. He's bright. And one would say that once you've met him, rather in person or through documentaries, interviews, you don't forget him because he definitely has a presence and a, um, in, in, a in an affect, a way of speaking, a, a manner of being which. I, I don't believe is a uh, I don't believe it's a put on. I don't think that he's you know going out of his way to do this stuff. It's just who he is, and it is a very strong personality. And you can understand when you watch Lost Soul, this documentary, that that strong personality would run up against um, more conservative elements in the Hollywood establishment when he was trying to make the uh, Island of Dr. Moreau.
0: So yeah, the story of Lost Soul, the Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau is essentially a story of the making of The Island of Dr. Moreau, which was a 1996 film. Maybe you're familiar with it. Maybe you're not. By you, I'm talking to the audience. Rob, I'm sure that you saw this thing first weekend in theaters.
1: Oh, I got to tell you. No, actually, I, I have never seen it. I've only seen bits of it, and I stayed away from it because it was, at the time, I wasn't big on Val Kilmer. That was part of it. Uh, When it came out in 96, I mean, he had done The Saint. He had done his turn as Batman. Eh, It's kind of done with Val Kilmer. I really didn't want to deal with him anymore. And then on top of it, the fact that I did remember some stories related to it being taken away. And I like John Frankenheimer, but to me, John Frankenheimer's best work was 30 years earlier. I mean, we've talked about John Frankenheimer. If you want to hear a great interview about John Frankenheimer and his work, check out the show we did on Seconds, which is one of his films in the Paranoia Trilogy. And those films are fucking great, like Seconds and uh, Manchurian Candidate. I mean, that that stuff is just classic. So by this time, he, he wasn't interesting anymore. And we get the feeling in this documentary that Frankenheimer was put in because he was just like, hey, I need to work, (laughs) and uh, I'll do it right now because i got nothing else going on.
0: I did see The Island of Dr. Moreau in theaters, and I mostly saw it for Nelson De La Rosa. Uh, Those who are not familiar with Nelson De La Rosa, he was, for me, a very early internet sensation. I mean, I'm talking like... 96 kind of stuff I mean really just like um, Where the hell did this come from Kind of thing He was on like Super Sabato Doing some dancing years and years ago And Nelson De La Rosa I want to say he's like 2 foot 4 And he just doesn't look fully right in some reason and him doing all this dancing and stuff, he kind of looked like a puppet. And then before Island of Dr. Moreau came out, he was in entertainment weekly and they had a picture of him where he was kind of crouched down just a little bit. And it was a two page spread and it was a photo of him and it was actual size. So he was just a little bit taller than a magazine opened up with both sides open. So I went to see it for him. I had heard some of the stories about Val Kilmer and um, Marlon Brando not getting along on set. I had no idea about the John Frankenheimer thing about the, you know, Richard Stanley. I just was completely clueless the only thing i knew was that kilmer and brando didn't get along very well and i was really glad i had heard about this project this uh, lost soul documentary i want to say maybe like a year ago it seemed like there was a real glut probably early 2014 of all of these different projects coming up on like kickstarter and indiegogo where it was like Whatever Happened to Superman 5, the Fantastic Four movie, Lost Soul. Uh, around that time, I was hearing a lot about hadorowski's Dune, and there was at least one other doc where it was just like, all of these movies that never happened or they didn't happen the way that they were originally supposed to, so... This kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit for me, and then all of a sudden on Facebook, people started talking about, oh, I watch Lost Soul, and this is terrific, and all this stuff, and I'm just like, oh, man, this must be going around to festivals, and then I have to tell you, folks, this is a little bit of a secret that I never knew before on IMDb they have this little feature called a watch list and you can put stuff on your watch list. And since IMDb is kind of Amazon's bitch a little bit, it will tell you if something is available on your watch list via Amazon's video service, you know, the, the prime or whatever, the the video streaming service that they have. And all of a sudden, bam, Hey, lost soul is available on Amazon prime. So best six dollars that i ever spent and i will be spending more money on this movie after it comes out on blu-ray because it's going to have more features to it and i'm excited as hell to see even more of this because even at what was it an hour and a half i am ready to see more of this thing because it is just such an fascinating story i think that david gregory did a fantastic job of getting these folks to really kind of open up about the project that could have been and the insanity that really kind of went down when the project happened
1: i mean to me as i'm watching it and it's funny because richard stanley is in Jodorowsky's dune is i got the feeling of that but this is even like worse than that Because, like, with Jodorowsky, he tried to make the film, it didn't work, and then almost 10 years later, the movie comes out. In this case, the producers, they didn't shut down the film. They hired a new director, and then, here it is. And it's nothing like what his vision was. And for me, God, that's like, you're going to have a baby, they take the baby away from you, and then they mutilate it in front of you. It's like, I mean, that's really the only way you can explain it in an artistic way because it must've been so painful. And we do get a feeling of that in this documentary of how like emotionally painful it was for this guy because Richard Stanley It goes into the fact that like this was one of the first books that he read as a kid. It meant a lot to him. He had thought about it for years. He had seen all of the various adaptations of the film, probably the best version, but he talks about why it's not so great. From his mind, in terms of being true to the source material, was um, The Island of Lost Souls with Charles Lawton from the 30s. And it's just fascinating how much time, energy, effort, and resources this man put into this thing? I mean, this is one of those things that, unlike Dune, where you get with Jodorowsky, where it was like, well, what should I do? And someone says, you should do Dune. Okay, I'll do Dune. And then he becomes obsessed with Dune. This is a case of someone who, from basically birth almost was obsessed with this story. He knew so much about it. He knew so much that was wrong with every adaptation that was made of it. And there's fascinating elements in terms of me being, I mean, I'm a huge Apocalypse Now fan, huge. And there's this whole thing in there about HG Wells and Joseph Conrad and how they didn't get along. And that in a way, They were answering each other with Hearts of Darkness and I Love Dr. Moreau. And it's fascinating, like history, like literary history there. And then to have Brando play Kurtz and then have Brando play Dr. Moreau is even another level on top of it. So there's so much stuff in this film that is just fascinating and so worth your time. So let's go ahead take a break and play the
0: interview with David Gregory the director of Lost Soul the Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr Moreau. You've have been working in the business for quite a little bit here. How did you get involved with making Documentaries, making features
2: started back when Texas Chainsaw Massacre was still banned in England. It looked like the head of the censors for many, many years was uh, going to step down. So we got in touch with the rights holders of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and did a deal with them. And then the censor got wind that we were going to do that, and he told us uh, don't even try it because the film will never come out in England. And then when he stepped down, we tried again, and the the rights had already been sold to somebody else. And then my partner, Carl, who I'm still partners with at Summer and Films, uh, were mightily annoyed by this. So we missed out on the chance to distribute Texas Chainsaw Massacre as their first film in distribution. This is why I was still in college. So as a result, we decided we we're going to make a documentary about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So me and a couple of friends and a camcorder went to Austin and tracked down as many people as we could from Texas Chainsaw Massacre and made a, a feature-length documentary called The Shocking Truth and released that on its own. And then William Lustig was working at Anchor Bay at the time. He heard that I'd done the Texas Chainsaw Massacre documentary and asked me if I wanted to do some stuff for him at Anchor Bay. And that's when I kind of got brought over to L.A. to do sort of the special features for Anchor Bay. And from then on, we I was in L.A. permanently. And then I uh, Bill starts Blue Underground U.S. And I uh, was with him for the first six years. And then we formed Severum Films.
0: I'm looking at your CV and I'm just amazed at the number of special feature documentaries that you have made in your career. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's quite a few. I mean, and I'm still doing it. You know, I'm still working on uh, the Bronx Warriors films for uh, for Blue Underground right now, and doing my extras for Lost Soul, and uh, also working on Mississippi Burning, Colors, Midnight Run, and State of Grace for Second Sight in the UK. So I'm always uh, I'm always doing a bunch of uh, bunch of interesting special features.
0: What are some of the favorite ones that you've done?
2: Probably my favorite would be The Godfathers of Mondo, which is the one about uh, it's a feature length piece we did on Jacopetti and Prosperi, the original Mondo, Kane, Africa, and the uh, Goodbye, Uncle Tom guys. And, um, the reason I like that one so much is that when uh, uh, m- most of the literature about these two guys is about how they were, you know, just pure exploitation, gross, you know, the, the lowest of the low, that kind of thing. And, you know, you look at their films and although, you know, there might be dated and uh, there's some racially questionable uh, material in there and, uh, you know, some questionable material in general in there. But the fact was they were hightailing it to war-torn countries to get footage from the front lines and so it's particularly in Africa Radio, and I was like there has to be real filmmakers behind this there's there's no way that they were just doing it for pure exploitation there has to be a reason why these guys will put themselves in, in in harm's way to to just get footage as sensational as it was or not that was very interesting to me it was very different from your average kind of mondo movie ripoff where they collected you know news footage or or, or footage from other sources and and, and just kind of <laughs> hashed some stuff, threw some stuff together to make it, you know, faces of death or whatever it may be. The instigators behind these films were very interesting to me. And sure enough, when we uh, when we tracked them down and interviewed them, uh, they're both very different people. Prosperi you know, more of an anthropologist and and is more of a, you know, a sensational headlined type of guy. He's he's the one who wanted to really kind of shock people and make people kind of stand up and go, oh, this is not right, you know, like throwing stuff in their face. So they were, they were just fascinating guys and got to make a feature piece for them, I also like uh, the Joe Spinell story that I did for the for the Maniac uh, disc. Various ones I've done with Jess Franco because he's uh, such a, a fascinating. Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of them. I'm, I just recently did one on the French movie Betty Blue, which I'm I'm really happy with as well. Yeah, I'm amazed at how many
0: of your films that I've seen over the years and that I've referenced in the podcast. And, you know, just the other day we were preparing to do an episode on uh, bad boy Bubby and I'm watching yep. the extra. And sure enough, directed by David Gregory first credit at the end I'm like oh
2: yeah 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 no Bad Boy Bobby was was, uh, was, was also a personal favorite of mine I've I'd, I'd known about it for years and it never had a proper US release certainly not on, on any form of home video I think it had an art house release theatrically and then just kind of quietly disappeared and that was while i was working with bill at blue underground and you know on occasion i would say we really need to release this film and i just remember in that case bill calling me up and he'd got only just got through the credits and i was like david what the fuck is the matter with you you know, this guy has pissed himself, killed a cat, and fucked his mother within the first five minutes of the film. What is the matter with you? And I was like, yeah, well, Bill, you have to watch the whole movie. I mean, that's the thing. It kind of starts out really shocking, and actually straight, you wouldn't believe it, actually becomes kind of a sweet movie. Um, and anyway, it was a particular favorite of mine, and Bill was just like, well, whatever. If you if you think it's got an audience, then we'll give it a try. And that happened, that happened a few times with, uh, when I was working with Bill. He was very open to... So To ideas, even if he didn't quite get the movies that we were talking about. He even (laughs) recently said to me that he was like, you've always had questionable tastes when it came to movies.
1: (laughs) So how were
0: the seeds of Lost Soul, the doomed journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau? How, How
2: was that planted for you? I'd known about Richard Stanley since I was at the world premiere of Hardware, which took place at a festival called Shock Around the Clock in London in 1990. And it was one of those all-night horror shows where uh, they also showed the world premiere of Meet the Feebles and uh, a bunch of British premieres like Nightbreed and Maniac Cop Two. And you know, it was, a, it was an amazing festival. Uh, it's now become Fright Fest in London, which is a which is a four-day affair, but it used to just be sort of 24 hours. Anyway, Hardware. Where it was one of the movies that was there. So from then on, it was I was very interested to see what Richard Stanley was going to do. It seemed like this this young fellow was going to show us some interesting stuff in the genre. He certainly was very intelligent and, and had a pretty unique vision. So then Dust Devil came, and that was uh, that was you know the, the theatrical cut was a bit confusing, shall we say. But then it was announced that he was doing the, the Island of Dr. Moreau, and I thought that was really interesting, and the fact that he was doing it for a Hollywood company, New Line, uh, not necessarily a studio, but a major independent um, and at the time, in the mid-90s, uh, horror was, was pretty lame. It was pretty bloodless. And, you know, the censorship of the, of the Reagan era and stuff like that was still pervading into, de- into the 90s. And so there was, there was very little to look, look forward to in horror. And I thought the idea of Stanley doing Island to Dr. Moreau was, was very exciting because, well, it's not, it didn't have to necessarily be a, a very gory thing. It's always been a very perverse story, splicing human genes with animal genes and stuff like that, and the House of Pain and stuff like that. The ideas in it were, were, were quite perverse and confrontational, even you know all those years later after it was written. And they obviously knew the material very well, so it was, uh, that was exciting. Fast forward a couple of years when the film finally came out, and I remember just looking in the paper, uh, and seeing that it was released, and thinking, "Oh, I didn't even didn't even hear that, that this was coming out this week." Uh, interesting. And then looked down to the credit block, and it was directed by John Frankenheimer, and that was the first that I knew that it that Richard Stanley wasn't the director, and uh, that was the first time it was on my radar. And then over the years, rumors were coming out about you know the fact that he'd been fired, obviously very early on in the process, and then the rumors that you know he'd snuck back onto set in a uh, animal mask, things like that. There was. Just some very interesting production stories. We ended up doing hardware on Blu-ray at Severin, and I met Richard then. And after that, we did the Theatre Bizarre, the anthology movie, which, uh, which I was one of the producers on, and I co-directed with Richard and Buddy Giovanazzo, Doug Butt, Jeremy Kaston, Tom Sabini, Kareem Hussein, and who am I missing? Damn it! I know I've missed somebody. I'm sorry uh, about that. But anyway, <laughs> but we were doing that, and that's when I kind of got to know Richards quite well, you know, because we were we were working on this film together. And during post-production, I went out to visit him in Montego, where he lives, which is uh, in the south of France in the French Pyrenees, very remote village in the French Pyrenees. And we were hanging out, and I just thought the time was right to ask him what he probably always gets asked, which is, you know, what happened on the island of Doctor Moreau. Tell me, tell me the facts. You know, I want to, I want to hear the stories. I want to hear the dirt. And they just started unloading all these amazing stories on me. And immediately I thought, you know, this is this has got to be its own feature. And I was looking for, I was looking for a subject that could be its own feature because obviously I'd done quite a lot of these um, special features, and they. And they often get kind of sidelined when, when people are uh, looking at a Blu-ray or a DVD because they're, they're just extras, you know. But I, <laughs> Me and, and and quite a lot of other people who, who produce these things really put a lot of effort into them, particularly the, the sort of bigger ones where we get a lot of people involved. You know, it's kind of frustrating sometimes when they're just like, oh, yeah, and there's a bunch of interviews on the disc as well, you know. <laughs> so I was looking for a subject that could stand on its own as a feature, and certainly, you know, the more Richard was telling me, uh, the more I was thinking, "Wow, I've got to track down as many of these people who can who can uh, recount their experience on this film because it was crazier than I could ever have imagined." And sure enough, I uh, I got my camera and uh, I had to convince do a bit of time convincing Richard to actually do, go on the record about it because obviously he's asked about it a lot a lot of times, and also you know he's probably kind of uh, Sick of uh, you know talking about something which essentially put a real you know harsh halt on this um, uh, burgeoning career. But anyway, I put it in the context that you know hopefully nobody you know once this is done and out and everything everybody will kind of know about it, and so you won't have to be asked all the same questions over and over again. And so he agreed. I did a lot of hours of interviewing just me and him uh, at his place a month ago, and then I just started reaching out to. Each and every person I possibly could who was involved in the production from the studio heads down to the production runners.
0: Richard Stanley seems like quite an
2: interesting fellow. What is he like to just hang around with? He's a very interesting fellow. And as anyone who tells you who's hung around with him, you know, he, has, he, he usually has a very interesting tale to tell about any kind of experience that he's had in his life. And he's had a lot of them. You know, he's, I guess he was inspired by the lead character in, in King Kong, which is a film that he saw early on. And he just wanted to be kind of this explorer and go to places which uh, man has never been to before. And so he's done a lot of that. And it's like a lot of very interesting things. Very curious fellow. It's a lot of fun because i mean he's 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 got experience that that people generally don't have, but more to the point, he always has a very interesting way of telling the stories of these experiences, and you'll also find that when you're you know spending time with Richard, all kinds of strange coincidences wind up happening which are just kind of which uh, just kind of normal to to him, and have now sort of become normal to me the more that they've happened, <laughs> but it just seems like that's the world of Richard Stanley.
0: It seems like he was a little hesitant to go ahead and go on the record with this, but when he finally agreed to it, what was his process like? What was it, was this kind of a catharsis for him, or was it
2: just a you know a slog for him? I think he was torn. Basically, you know, he definitely opened up and told all the stories that well, at least all the stories that he was willing to go on record about to me. But, you know, the more people that I got involved and I kind of generally kept him abreast of people that I'd interviewed and stuff like that. But I wasn't sure that he was – I mean, I told him that I was going to make a full documentary about it, but I don't think he'd gathered that I would get as many of these people that I was going to get or that they would even have agreed to talk about it, and they did. So I think he was a little concerned, and we got – We've got Doug Buck on, who was another friend uh, from the theatre Bazaar. He came on as an editor, and I think that gave him some level of comfort that there was another kind of friend on the production as well. but certainly, when he first saw the cut, I showed it to him before we went to uh, to the first festival, and he wasn 't too happy about it he was uh, he was He was pretty concerned about the way he came across in the film. And, you know, I thought, you know, despite that it was important to me to give everybody their perspective, uh, despite the fact that, you know, it's what Robert Shea says, the head of New Line, it makes perfect sense in the context of what happened in the story, i.e. that he didn't didn't care about this particular production. And so to him, uh, you know, all the pieces kind of fell into place. They weren't there to kind of sabotage Richard. They just didn't care about it. And then when it became a really expensive film they had to get rid of Richard because it became a rich, uh, sorry, a Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando film and they needed somebody who could try and handle these huge egos. Yeah. So, so he, he was, he was concerned at first, but I, I think, you know what he said since then, and he's, he's been very supportive of the film, even though he, he, he likes to sort of, you know, give, give a rebuttal to some of the, uh, to some of the points in there, you know, when he's been doing the Q and A's, but overall he's been saying once he watched it with an audience, and he saw that people were laughing, and, and it just became this absurd kind of tragic comedy. That's when he that's when he started to relax and realize that you know that it, maybe it is just kind of an enjoyable story at this point of of just something going massively out of control. And of course, it's it's brought quite a lot of attention to him as well. I mean, I think a lot of people's sympathies lie with Richard from watching the film, but even more so, it shows kind of um, you know what a visionary he is and how articulate he is about the work that, that he's may have on at the time. So it has hopefully ignite, reignited some some interest in, that, in another Richard Stanley movie.
0: I think some of that vision really comes across in some of those production paintings that you showed. Those are just so imaginative, so wonderful, and that's the movie that I really wish that I had been able to see.
2: Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, Graham Humphrey's the guy who did those pictures. It's pretty famous, particularly in England, for having done the original Evil Dead poster and Nightmare on Elm Street poster and uh, lots of other kind of iconic 80s horror movies he did the artwork for. And it worked with Richard on, on, on both of his films. He'd, he was a concept artist on hardware and dust devil. And so he was working very closely with Richard on those. And as you say, those, those first kind of 12 paintings that they did are just fantastic.
0: Did you get much pushback from some of the people that you approached that didn't, maybe didn't want to be involved just because they are still acting and active in Hollywood?
2: Yes, it was mainly the people who were still active that didn't want to take part. And it wasn't like pushback as in like, you know, you better not contact me again or, or anything like that. It was a simple Ron Perlman uh, does not have time to be a part of this project. That sort of thing. Although, um, although with uh, with David Doolittle, it was it was very much it was very it was much more strongly worded, as in that like, he wouldn't he wouldn't have anything to do with, with the gossip around such a production or something like that so that's why he's not in there uh Val kilmer obviously I didn't get him and I tried every way I possibly could but uh, we didn't even get a uh we didn't even get an answer from him mike de luca the head of the studio he just you know again it was just kind of like he's he can't fit it into his schedule so it was just like no he has no interest <laughs> you know so but 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 overall it was uh you know the people who who I did get were were pretty keen to talk about it because it was a very unique production experience for everybody who was on it.
0: I have to say, I was really impressed with Faruza Balk. Just the stories that she tells and her attitude about things, she was just amazing.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, she was really kind of one of the people who was the heart of the show. Her and Marco Hofschneider, the German actor, you know, I mean, they, they had full kind of arcs in terms of, you know, their excitement about the project in the same way that Richard was. I mean, obviously, they didn't have the, the intimacy with the material that Richard had, but they were definitely there at the beginning thinking, this is going to be something awesome, and I want to go along with it. And they were kind of right there on the front lines through, you know, Richard being fired through having to live through the, the, the this crazy production through to, you know, just being really disappointed in, in how it came out versus, uh, you know, what, what they thought it was going to be when they signed on.
0: Yeah, Marco's story about being assaulted by Nelson De is just amazing.
2: <laughs> Marco is a terrific storyteller, that's for sure. And actually on the Blu-ray, there's going to be a few more, uh, a few more Marco stories, maybe some extended versions, because that, that story that Marco tells about how, how Nelson essentially took his part and rose to be, you know, that second-in-command to Marlon Brando was, was a much longer story. It's hilarious, but it, it obviously just didn't fit uh, to put the whole thing into Lost Soul.
0: I can't wait to see the extras for this. I know that you must go through so much research when you're putting these pieces together, especially a feature-length documentary like this. And, yeah. You know, To your point, there's probably so many things around the cutting room floor, so many things that you knew but you couldn't find a way to tell the story, these kind of things. What are some of the things that you found out or that you— discovered as you were going through this process that you really wish that you'd been able to fit into the dock, but weren't able to find a way to do
2: that? You know, for the most part, the stuff that I really, really wanted in there is in there. It, it's the story I wanted to tell. The problem was, with the first cut was about five hours that, that, that Buck and I came up with. So it was, a matter of, uh, it was a matter of taking stuff down and thinning it out and, and stuff like that, and really just holding on to what was really important in the story. But I mean, there are little details, like the fact that Marlon Brando at the time, anyone could get a meeting with Marlon Brando about their project if they put a million dollars into escrow. So it meant that they were serious. That's how you got Marlon Brando onto a film. And so there were sort of little details like that that we, that we sort of have to, had to take out because of time. What else? I mean, there was a few more things uh, with Richard on, on on what happened during the time that he was shooting and how, you know, everyone's like, where the hell is Richard? And, and for him, it was it was about saving the animals on the freighter during the storm and he was basically carrying a live puma off off the boat onto a raft so it could be taken back to shore, and the puma pissed on him. And that's what happened to his white suit, that everybody was so uh, keen to comment on was the only thing that he wore, but he got pissed on by a puma, so that's kind of the end of the suit. You know, so little stuff like that that will will no doubt be in the extras.
0: Did any of that footage that he shot, did did any of that make it into the final cut, or did that just get scrapped with?
2: No, we, we it, it, none of that footage made it into the final cut of the movie. And we didn't try and find it because we knew, I know from having released any number of films to try and find, you know, outtakes and things like that, unless it's, you know, an independent production where the, where the, the producer or director's kept everything. It's very hard to get those outtakes. You know, if I was, even, even if New Line were to, cooperate with this. New Line is not owned by... New Line is no longer Bob Shea's company. It's now a Time Warner company. So, me just knocking on the door at Time Warner and saying, oh, can I go through all the rushes of, uh, of the island of Dr. Moreau to find the shot that the Richard Stanley made, like that, that Barbara Steele footage, for example. You know, I, as much as I wanted to see it, I just knew that there was, there was no possible way that I would be able to find it.
0: What do you think that Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau would have been
2: like? I think if it'd kept it a 5 to 8 million film it would have been quite something you know the one with Jürgen Prochnow as Dr Moreau I think as soon as it starts becoming this this bloated expensive film, it's something that's, that's got the remotest amount of cutting edge material in it is going to start getting watered down so it can play to a wider audience so it can play to the multiplexes. So I think as soon as it was no longer that five to eight million with Jurgen Prock now, I think you know even with Richard at the helm, even if it been able to hold, even if you'd had been able to control Brando and Kilmer, you know, it still probably would have been a lot more watered down from what what he originally wrote. But he has now, uh, as a result of Lost Soul, he's now been approached by a uh, graphic novel company called The Humanoids. And he has subsequently rewritten his original script. And it's actually, you know, he went back and looked at the script and said it's actually now dated. So he's actually updated it and made it a much more kind of NC-17 rated uh, type of film. So it will be a three-part graphic novel, I think, uh, which will be published sometime next year.
0: Nice they said he can finally kind of get his story to have some time in the sun there
2: exactly yeah yeah
0: One of the things that it's simple, but it was so effective that you were doing in the documentary was that whole idea of the poster image and the way that you're moving the heads out and moving them back in and the different actors that were coming in and out of the film. I have to say that was really, really well done. And it just made such a difference to kind of see the way that this project was shaping as it was trying to come along.
2: Yeah, I, and funnily enough, I actually just um, <laughs> I actually just did a, a, a final tweak before the Blu-ray comes out, whereby uh, David Thewlis's fa- uh, Rob Morrow's face gets replaced by David Thewlis after Frankenheim takes over, because one of the things that everybody noticed in the festival and, and theatrical cut was like, uh, at what point did David Thewlis come in? And I'd left David Thewlis kind of out of it because he was so adamant not to be a part of it but obviously it left like a little uh, hole in terms of the narrative, in terms of the closure of what happened to Rob Morrow. So I just, um, just today, in fact, before I delivered the, the final version for the Blu-ray. I just added a bit where Rob Morrow said Frankenheimer asked him to stay and he just said, Nah, this this picture's too much of a mess and then we bring back the poster and Rob Myro's face goes away and it's replaced by Foodless.
0: I was really glad to see Rob Myro show up for this.
2: I was too it's and it's very strange. He was one of the first people I actually interviewed after Richard. He he was very quick to come back to me and and, and say, Yeah, I'd like to do this. I, I I wasn't I was never quite sure why he was um so made himself so available for this for this project, which obviously was uh, probably not the most shining light of his career either. I mean, he never got. He, luckily for him, he was never actually in the final disastrous movie. But still, it was something that was obviously quite an unpleasant experience for him. Uh, for him, but um, but again, I think an experience that probably stuck with him. So, so he got to tell his uh, his side of that.
0: When you finally did see Island of Doctor did you go to see it when you saw the ad in the paper?
2: I did go to see it when it first came out, yeah, and I was, oh, as far as to say I was, I was angry about it because I was still kind of confused as to what this movie was. But I even thought, you know, was there with the two different Moreau's being made at the same time? It was more than that. I was just thinking that was just really mediocre and really dumb. <laughs> and now you can see why and actually I went to the other night when they played it here in LA as part of the, the kind of the Richard Stanley festival that they've been doing, they've been, they showed everything they showed Island of Lost Souls and they showed the, the Frankenheimer movie and among a bunch of uh, Richard's work as well. And I went to see it at midnight, and, and, you know, it it, it actually played a lot more fun than I'd remembered it, just because now, of course, I know just a story behind every single shot that's in it. I mean, it's incredible that that they got a film that was even deliverable. And I'm sure they were like, you know, they knew they were going to get raked over the coals critically, but they... Had a film that they could put out with Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer, and, and that was enough for them to get to, to scrape some money back, so they they were satisfied.
0: The one thing I remember from when that movie first came out was just hearing the, the stories, not of Richard Stanley, but of Val Kilmer and how difficult he was on the set, and that he constantly was mocking Brando and doing his voice. And then I forgot that he actually does Brando's voice in the film. It's so yeah. bizarre. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, it seemed like everybody was just kind of doing their own thing, really. And as long as they got Brando and Kilmer in front of camera, they just they just had to let them do a certain amount of whatever they wanted because they needed to get footage of Kilmer and Brando into the film. Um, so there was no time to sit around and debate why the hell are you doing that uh, mocking Brando voice? Uh, why the hell have you got an ice bucket on your head? You know, there's just, just just roll roll camera, you know, and, and get what they could. But Certainly, it seemed that uh, the vow was, from what everybody says, he was definitely a bit of a problem on the set. But as Richard says, it was there was nobody there who was saying no to him. So, you know, when somebody's got that much power and he thinks, you know, he, he rules the world because he's just come with Batman and he's one of the biggest stars in the world. If you allow him to get away with, uh, with certain things, he's just going to keep on pushing it further and further and further and, and do whatever the hell he wants, which it seems like that's what he did.
0: Which definitely seems like Marlon Brando's kind of raison d'etre as well.
2: Brando seems like he was, he was a guy who, who was quite the prankster and often at the expense of the production. And I think uh, somebody who worked with him told me afterwards that, you know, the whole ice bucket on the head thing, he actually said in the trailer beforehand, he said, today I'm going to put an ice bucket on my head and just watch how nobody tells me to take it off because they won't. And sure enough, they're like, okay, let's walk work around Marlon with an ice bucket on his head. Let's get it. <laughs> you
0: know? He's like a bad little boy who's just waiting to be spanked.
2: Oh, yeah, and having, a, and, and having a good time with it.
0: So what's next up with the documentary? You've talked about the Blu-ray. It will contain uh, a slightly longer
2: cut of the movie. Uh, a bunch of outtakes, and uh, some really interesting special features, including on, on this we'll do a very limited special edition, which will have kind of the, the uh, HG Wells file, which will have a feature at about Wells in the cinema, it will have Richard talking a lot about, very specifically about H.G. Uh, Wells. But the most interesting thing for me was that while I was doing my research, I found out that there was a 1921 version of The Island of Dr. Moreau called Island of the Lost, which nobody, nobody seemed to know about. It was a German film directed by Urban Gad. And basically, I don't even know if it was an official version. It might have been one of those Nosferatu things where they just kind of did the story. No, I'm not going to pretend that it's like some lost classic. It's not as good as The Iron of Lost Souls or Nosferatu, but it's very interesting that there was a 1921 version. You know, it's still got beast people and and all that kind of things. So yeah, we're going to put that on as kind of like and on kind of like the, the bonus DVD in the limited edition. Oh, that's terrific.
0: How weird is it now for you to be doing bonus features for your own feature?
2: <laughs> well, I've done that before. I did that on the film Plague Town. I did it on the Theatre Bazaar. I'm going to do it again on the Theatre Bazaar because everyone's going to be doing the, the, the Uber edition of, uh, of the Theatre Bazaar sometime this summer. It's not so weird. I've actually got somebody helping me uh, you know, edit them just because there's such a wealth. Of material. So, you know, I need to, while I'm doing all these other feature apps and producing the other Severin discs like *Vampiros Lesbos which we've got coming out soon, which is superlative edition if there's anyone out there who likes Jess Franco, you know, I I, I need help to do all these because the the editorial actually takes uh, quite a lot of time. Yeah, but it it does kind of put me in a position where I, you know, I get to I get to kind of cherry pick what would make good extras on on my own films, you know. And I think the stuff that we've got going on there is pretty cool.
0: So I guess it would be even weirder when eventually you become such a big shot that somebody else is doing the extras for your films.
2: <laughs> well, there's no danger of that happening anytime soon. So we'll worry about that when uh, when that happens. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, no doubt I'd be like, "This is shit. I'll do it myself," you know. <laughs>
1: Well, hey,
0: thank you so much, David. This has been really nice talking to you. My pleasure. Anytime. We're back. Thank you to David Gregory for taking the time to talk to us. And like he said in the interview, there is going to be a Blu-ray release of this movie. And I am champing at the bit. I can't wait to see more of it. What I saw on Amazon Prime, I mean, it was the full movie and everything. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't like clips or whatever. I saw the full film. I just want to see more. I want to see more of what happened with this thing. I really want to see more of those paintings that they had. The kind of production Paintings that they put together kind of sell the story and everything. I mean, some of those just looked fascinating. And then to also see kind of the religious overtones of it. I mean, again, what you were saying earlier, I'm so glad that you brought up Alan Moore because it really does feel like Richard Stanley and Alan Moore kind of kindred spirits, kindred in the fact that they're both very smart men and also a little bit off kilter guys. And they just kind of know what they're talking about but they're talking about things that most people don't necessarily think about or understand too often so they and they both have their magic i suppose that's the other thing
1: they're just so solid in their vision and and you can dismiss their vision and say that doesn't work for me but you can't say dumb you can't say that these people don't know what they're doing and that's the thing that's fascinating is is having people who have that solid of a vision. And I agree with you with all of these production stills. And I wasn't there at one point. He talked about they did like a comic book or something. They created something to kind of help explain some scenes in the stories, uh, it, some scenes in the film, and, and how they were going to present this as part of the pitch meeting. And although not the giant Dune book that Jodorowsky has that I've been championing since I saw the documentary going, Tasha needs to print this, Tasha needs to print this. I think you have as much material here and as much fascinating material here that you could also do the same thing. Like you could go into his archive, you could have those original scripts, you could have those original production bits, you could have all of these things. And also in a way kind of tell this story that you get in this documentary. And as we know, when you create any documentary, there are things that have to be left out, which like you said, the Blu-ray is probably going to be just a treasure trove of additional materials. You could probably do a really nice book to really get into those elements if you had the documentary and all of those full interviews that you had with those people and those production stills and those scripts and just put together an amazing, amazing piece. And um since I guess probably the H. G. Wells book is also in um you know, the public domain, you could probably throw that in there as well. So you have everything in one place. I went back
0: and I read the book and then I watched the movie, uh the I, I hesitate to call it the Frankenheimer movie, but I watched that movie and um When I saw it the first time, I will say that I didn't mind the movie that much. I was really, really into uh, Faruza Bulk and um, really enjoyed seeing her in it as kind of like, you know, the Panther woman kind of person. But going back and watching it this last time uh, just a few weeks ago, it's like, yeah, this really doesn't hold up too well. And you can just really feel that it's kind of stitched together from... Better ideas that weren't necessarily fleshed out. So it just, um, I have to say that in a battle between Lost Soul and the island of Dr. Moreau, that Lost Soul definitely wins. And it's kind of one of those, um, you know, we're going to be talking in a, in a little bit here about uh, 20 years of madness and 30 minutes of madness. Uh, one is a documentary about a show, and the other is the show itself. Those two things go together really well. Um, I almost hesitate to recommend watching Island of Dr. Moreau and then watching Lost Soul or vice versa because Island of Dr. Moreau is kind of a painful experience, but I think that you really do owe it to yourself to see the film and then see what it kind of could have been and to hear the stories about it. And I was really glad that they had the people who were in the movie you know, talking about it, I was especially glad to, well, see more for bulk, of course, but of her stories and her candor, it just felt like she just doesn't give a shit whatsoever. And I was really glad to hear some of the stories that she was telling.
1: Well, the thing with her that's amazing is that you have someone who signed up for that original vision and just how cheated they felt. I mean, you really get the feeling that she felt that she got cheated because she originally signed up to work with Richard Stanley and to do this, this film to do his vision and that it got taken away and destroyed and ripped up in front of her and then she was left just sitting there with like what the hell am I doing <laughs> you know, to a certain extent and the, the the thing that was funny for me and I and I had kind of an idea of what they were referencing we were talking about the South Park stuff but I didn't know to what extent and when they show those scenes from the island of Dr. Moreau with Brando and the guy as you said as sort of the mini me which of course is then used by Mike Myers as mini me also reference in Austin Powers I'm
2: just like, wow. I'm so pleased that your children are interested in genetic engineering. It's okay. it's
0: okay, Nobody's gonna hurt
2: you. It's thanks to the wonders of genetic engineering that soon there will be an end to hunger, disease, pollution, even war. I have created things that will change the world for the better. For instance, here is a monkey with four asses.
1: And there's a great line in there, and I think it's one of the producers or somebody who says, Brando's contempt for his profession was on display. And that's the one thing I don't get about Brando that just drives me up a wall where, you know, in the fifties and he was doing great work and all that stuff. And then eventually there seems to be a point in his life and career where he just doesn't give a fuck anymore. And it shows and it either shows in one of two ways. It either shows in the horrible stories and the horrible treatment of the filmmakers and people that he worked with like Coppola and Coppola used him, you know, twice uh, almost in the way that Herzog was using Kinski. If you hear those stories where it's like, I know I'm going to get a great performance, but I got to put up with a lot of bullshit. So I guess if, if I got to put up with fucking two hours of screaming with this guy on my fucking set and we both want to kill each other, we've both planned to kill each other at one point, go watch my best fiend, the Herzog documentary, then I guess that's okay because it's really about the performance and what I get. But to me, it's so unnecessary. It's so horrible. And I mean, you hear about the, the stories where it's like, I want X, I want all this stuff and I want all this money and I want to be treated a particular way. And I'm only going to shoot for two hours a day and, you know, and all this stuff. And it's just Jesus, you know, it's like, there are so many people out there who work so hard to try and be an artist, to try and be an actor, to try and work in that profession. And that kind of attitude to me just pisses all over that. It just disrespects it all day long. And it just – that just – it upsets me. It really does upset me on a particular level because it's hard to work in a creative field. Like I said, I have friends who are actors, I have friends who are directors, writers, you know, they're like they're trying to do that stuff. And they're just, they're dying. They're like starving. And then you have this guy who just it treats everyone like shit. And you do, like if he was alive, you just want to kick the shit out of him. At least I would, you know, because I'm like, what's your, what's your problem? Like you have such a privilege. This is such a privilege, such an honor that you have attained this level and you can have this as your career and, and your you know ability to do this. And, and this is how you treat people. This is, this is what you do to them. It's terrible. And now I'm going to get off my soapbox.
0: Stick with me on this one. I'm not a big fan of Birdman, the movie that came out last year with Michael Keaton and Edward Norton. But I really like the one scene where Norton comes in and we've already seen a particular scene in this play play out once. And then Norton comes in and basically kind of flips it on its head a little bit and plays it in a completely different way than we've seen before. And it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. We kind of saw something similar in Mulholland Drive with Naomi Watts when she comes in and does this scene that we've heard the dialogue before and plays it in this way where it is completely different and, again, Absolutely brilliant. Now, if Brando were the kind of guy where he could come in and say, listen, you know, I know that this is the way it's written, but I really think we need to do this and this is what I want to do. You know, give me give me a take kind of thing, and then is able to just kind of, you know, oh my god, I never would have thought of playing it that way. This guy is brilliant. And I'm sure in his early career, he was probably like that, but by the end, it's like, I don't know if you've ever seen the Missouri Breaks, but it's like, that one feels like one of those, like, hey, I'm going to come in, and I'm going to play this role my way, and fuck everybody else, because I think this is the way that the character should be, and it just doesn't work whatsoever and that totally to me is dr moreau you know when he's just like hey i really want to play this scene with an ice bucket on my head why why are you doing that it doesn't make any sense and it's like kind of along those same lines you know you're talking about val kilmer you weren't a big fan of val kilmer at this time val kilmer even though he was mocking Brando in the film, I mean, to the point where he's imitating him, it felt like he kind of got some pointers from Brando. I mean, this guy, he's had the most uneven career that I've really ever seen, and it's one of those where it just feels like every third or fourth or fifth movie, he cares, and the other times, he's just there for a paycheck. You know, you look at some of the stuff that he did, like... Tombstone.
2: I'm your Huckleberry.
0: Fucking brilliant in there. And then I'm like reaching for other ones. I'm like, and then Batman Forever and The Real McCoy. And it's just like you can list so many movies that he's doing. You know, at first sight, Red Planet is just like, why? And then you come up with like The Salton Sea and you're like, okay, great. Fucking fantastic. You come up with something like. A Bad Lieutenant. Bad Lieutenant, Lieutenant.
1: Porta New Orleans. I mean, he's only a secondary player in there, but what he does with what he has is really good. And like I said, by the time Dr. Moreau came out in 1996, I was a senior in high school or had just gotten out of high school, I wasn't interested in Val Kilmer. Like I, I had just gotten to a point where I'm like, I liked the doors. It was okay. Um, you know, but I mean, real genius, uh, top secret, uh, top gun. Yeah. You know, early stuff. Great. By this time I was like, yeah, uh, I don't care. (laughs) I'm not interested.
0: The last thing I saw him really, I mean, yes, of Call, he was fantastic in, but the last time I really saw him give just an amazing performance was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And I think that was, what, 2005? And it's like, come on, dude. You know, you can do great work. It doesn't always have to be mind hunters and Alexander that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm trying to think of the the piece of shit movie he was in that was shot in Grand Rapids a couple of years ago, and it was just like, man, you you're not even phoning in the performance. You're you're standing on a mountain somewhere, maybe kind of casually speaking it. You know, you are that far removed from what you're supposed to be doing, and I, I expect more from him, and I because I know he's got the talent, and it just kind of drives me crazy to see him squander it time and time and time again and It's like, do you have these tax problems that nicholas Cage has i mean there's got to be some reason why you're continuously being in shit where we can tell that you just don't care
1: I mean for me, off the top of my head, and I know we might get hate mail on this one, but I can only list maybe three or four great Brando performances throughout his entire career. And I know he did more work than that, but either I didn't see it or I don't care. <laughs> and and I understand that he became an icon and he had a name and, and his myth grew larger than him and his waistline at the same time. But it's just that, like like we talked about Orson Welles, right? And the Other Side of the Wind. And I'm willing to forgive Orson Orson Welles for his transgressions and his wine commercials and all of that stuff, because at least the guy was trying to do stuff on his own. He was trying to be an artist. He was trying to do something different, and he may be unsuccessful, but he wasn't this grandiose, horrible person that I think Brando eventually became. It almost became like self-parody. It almost became like he was mocking his own image. He was making fun of himself.
0: Well, he totally did in that um, Matthew Broderick film. What was it called? The Freshman?
1: It seems like his whole life kind of turned at one point into like a mockery of who he was. And it's very sad. And I'm sure that there's some biographer of Brando out there that would say, no, no, you know, this is is all the stuff he was dealing with. And I'm just a lay person. I'm just a, you know, Monday morning quarterback of, you know, now a dead actor, legendary dead actor. But I just I don't get it. You know, I just don't get it. <laughs> you know? Like I said earlier, I just don't get it. I don't understand why people like him or like you were saying, Val Kilmer is like, why do you want to just phone it in? Why do you want to just show up and just do direct? You should know, like at this point in your career, you know, this was 20 years ago, almost, when this movie was made. And Kilmer had been at least in films for 10 to 15 years before then. He would know what he's looking at. He would know how to do things. He would know what he was doing. And it just seems like it's sloppy and he didn't care. And to me, that's that's kind of unforgivable. I mean, when you look at the amount of money that's being spent on these films, and granted, back then, this movie was expensive, but it's not like today. When they spend, you know, 150 to $200 million regularly on a movie, it's kind of unforgivable to spend that much money and not make something that's good. Just go over to, you know, any poor community in America and just slap all those kids in the face who aren't getting fed because you just wasted enough money to put those kids all the way through college have them have a nice house and food in their bellies every single day and for the rest of their life, you know, it's terrible.
0: So we may have a big problem with Kilmer and with Brando. And I'm thinking maybe over the next couple of years, we need to take a look at some of the better performances by both of these guys and see that there is some good in them here and there. And we know that there is, but it, it's just not, enough. You know, we need to maybe look at some of like the unsung performances by some of these guys. But regardless, what they're doing is not good. Island of Dr. Moreau, not good. Lost Soul, The Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau, fantastic. Worth your time, worth your money. Watch that.
1: And the other thing that's nice in here too is there's Ed Pressman's in here. And Ed's been on our show a couple of times talking about various films, including Bad Lieutenant Protocol, New Orleans, and Bad Lieutenant, which he produced. And also Bob Shea, who started uh, New Line Cinema, also a fellow Detroit boy. So it's fascinating to hear what the producers and the distributors have to say about this film in terms of when it came to them and what happened, and how things twisted, how things turned, and how it became what it became. So it's, it's nice that it's just not you know a couple of disgruntled actors and the director – complaining about, oh, this is what happened. But you actually have the producers and the distributor going, well, this is what we were trying to do. This is how the budget got to where it was. These are the challenges we were up against. And it's interesting to take them into account as well. So, so I really liked that. I really liked that we had both uh, Edward Pressman and also Bob Shea.
0: Well, and I was glad to see Kayla Janice show up. She's one of the first faces that you see in the documentary. And it's like, oh, hey, we've had her on the show before and a friend of the show and just a, a friend in general. So that was like a real pleasant surprise to turn on this doc and see a, a buddy of ours. Always, always good. Yes. All right. So Lost Soul. The doomed journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. Definitely check it out. We will have links over at our website, projection booth.com, where you can go and see the movie, find out more information. So just make sure that you do that right away, or else you'll be sent to the House of Pain.
2: He who breaks the law goes back to the House of Pain. He who breaks the law goes back to the House of Pain.
1: A mild surroundings, so tired of walking so close to the ground. They needed a change. That's what they said. Life is better walking on two legs. But
2: they were in
1: for a big surprise. What is the law? No spill blood. What is the law? No spill blood. Who no. makes no. the rules? Some. In the stone, break the rules and you get no bones. All you get is ridicule, laughter, and a trip to the house of pain. What's the law? No stupid line. What is the law? No stupid line. Who makes the rules? Someone
0: else. Who makes the rules? Someone else. walk on two legs, not on four. walk on four legs, breaks the law. What happens when they
2: break the law?
1: What happens when the rules
2: aren't fair?
1: We all know where we go. from there! To the house of... the